0: You know, uh, when my, my mother-in-law was alive, um, one of the things that she loved to do is to go to church on Christmas Eve at midnight. She belonged to a particular segment of Christianity that liked to have church at midnight on Christmas Eve. And so when uh, before my daughters were married, we all went to a particular service at midnight on Christmas Eve with her. She was so excited, she thought we'd all get converted back to our uh, roots. But it was good. And actually, Pastor Peter was with us also. And I, I'll never forget the, the sermon. The guy who got up there, he had a little bit of an accent from some place in, I think, the South Pacific. And he kind of talked like the guy on, uh, you know, what's the what's the famous uh, marriage? Uh, <laughs> Princess Bride, <laughs> Princess Bride, yeah. He, he kind of had a marriage, marriage type of... Uh, tone, and, and it kind of sounded like this, and there was a sermon, Christmas is like a snowflake. <laughs> and that was the, the sermon, the seven-minute sermon, it was that Christmas was like a snowflake. And, I, and uh, God bless him, he probably put a lot of time into that sermon. Uh, but I, I felt that the, the birth of Jesus Christ, the absolute intervention of God in history, is is worthy of, of more than just christmas is like a snowflake i've always felt that i you know it's beautiful i love i love getting up here I, I got my notes here but they're last week's notes <laughs> so did you hear the one about the preacher that picked up the wrong notes <laughs> honey you can't look in there there's a christmas gift in there for you so do not look in that bag just give me the bag <laughs> My greatest fear today is you're going to look inside that bag. Like Job, that which I feared has come upon me. Sorry, folks. Didn't realize I had storage in there. Thank you, Darcy. Keep the bag away from Sue. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Darcy, can you put that back in the bag away from Sue? Thank you. You see, I have elves shopping for me all, all Christmas season. and One of those elves called us about 7.30 on Friday morning. And who was that? That was one of my elves. They were, they were buying something for me. And so, and so I met them and I put it in my bag. And I've been taking it out because Sue knows where everything is in the house. And it's very hard to hide things from her. One of the things I, I love to do in, in, in preaching is to get off topical subjects, like we're, we had a great topical subject like on the all generations and the all generations in the church, and, and just take a section of scripture and, and do what's called exegesis. In other words, read it, explain and interpret it and how we apply it you know in our particular life. And, uh, uh, and I especially like doing this, deal, dealing with seasons of uh, what we'll call church festivals like like Christmas, where we're really celebrating events where God invaded history. I mean, that whole concept to me of God invading history, one being a historian, but to the concept of the one who created us, came to us, I think is probably one of the most life-giving truths any believer can embrace. You know, we are commemorating at Christmas the... um, we're we're commemorating what's called the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That that could be a fancy word to somebody, incarnation. It means that that God dwelt or God was in this person called Jesus of Nazareth. That God became man. He he joined the human race. Now, why that is significant, it's significant in, in two areas. One, it's, it's significant philosophically or apologetically. Apologetically means defending the faith in that it, it really answers the question of how could a loving God allow suffering? How many people have ever had someone present that question? How can an all-powerful, all-loving God you know, allow suffering to take place? Well, we're celebrating and the commemorating the, the birth of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, and the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It really does answer that question. Because the God who created us, the all-powerful God is over everything, who obviously allows suffering, entered into the human race and joined us in that suffering. In the events of Jesus' life, and if you study Jesus' life, I mean, it was not a life that was free of suffering. Even prior to his ministry, and they had to flee to Egypt because someone was seeking to kill him. They lived in an obscure place in, 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 in Judea where, where people would say there's nothing good that could come out of Nazareth. They lived amongst the poor and they, 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 they lived in, in possibly even accusation that maybe Mary had Jesus illegitimately. And so all that they faced even growing up and the opposition in his ministry and the things that he went through even fasting for 40 days in the wilderness to establish that he was sinless. All those things that he suffered, the opposition of religious institutions of his day, plus the agonies of the cross and all that he experienced on the cross, Jesus entered into all the sufferings of humanity. He entered into the injustices of secular government sometimes that violate people's rights. He, he entered into the gas chambers of Auschwitz. He entered into the killing fields of Cambodia. He entered into someone being neglected or abandoned or abused. He entered into the injustices of poverty. He entered into the suffering of man. He took it all upon himself on that cross. So when say, how could a loving God you know, allow this? He went through it himself. And because of that, he can identify with us. Because of that, he has an answer and a remedy to reverse those things, and it's called the cross. The second second thing that's very significant about this story, that we're talking about the birth of Jesus, is a theological one. Because it answers the question of how God can forgive us. God is a, a God of justice. In other words, God has right and God has wrong. And for God to be a just ruler and for God to uphold that justice, God has to judge evil. Now we wrestle with that. That seems to be barbaric to us. That seems to be a cruel and cold to us if, that God would judge. Man, why couldn't God just be loving? Why would he have to judge? Well, if God did not judge sin, then God would have to endorse anarchy. For God to judge sin means to, for God to uphold his law. To, for him to uphold his law, he gives actually hope for you and me to be restored, society to be restored, families to be restored. If not, he just kind of turns away, and he just kind of winks at it. Anarchy is the result. And so it's offensive to people, repulsive if God would judge, but the opposite, if we didn't have judgments in our land, we didn't have judgments in, in the places where, where uh, we live. We would live in absolute anarchy. I've been to places around the world where it is anarchy. And you feel the absence of law and the absence of order and the absence of moral order. And you don't feel safe. See, God upholds his law. And so he has to judge sin. Now, to a lot of people, then that becomes offensive because there's a statement that somehow they need to be saved and there's something wrong with them and that's offensive, aren't we good? And so it kinda of begs the question, well isn't man good? Man is, man is good in the sense that he's made in the image of God and he has a conscience, different people have different levels of conscience, he has a sense of what is right and he has a sense of what is good and he's in that but in that nature that we're creating his image, we, we are tainted. Our best interests are still stained with self-interest. Our best actions somehow got me tied to it. And My actions, good or bad, it's, it's stained by this thing called me and what I want to do and my selfishness and my self-interest. On top of that, we are smiley rebe- rebels from birth. We may be happy rebels, smiley rebels, cute rebels, Okay, we may be clever, humorous. Got everybody laughing. We may be geniuses, and we may even have uh, some good intentions to do something good for some of us. We're rebelling against God. There's something in us that rebels against God. And we may view ourselves as good, but by nature, the apostle Paul said, we're children of wrath. or are children deserving of the judgment of God. How many here would be very open for us to do a DVD on you. We, we've actually been covering you since birth. We got it in my library. Of all the things that you ever have done in secret or in your heart, your mind, and what you've done privately or publicly with knowledge of people, without knowledge of people in your life that you're ashamed of, we'd like to see a 20-minute video of that before the church today. Any volunteers? No volunteers. So by nature... There's something wrong with us. And God has a remedy for that. And the remedy is for justice to be satisfied so mercy can be given. For that to happen, God has to have a sinless sacrifice. And for a sinless sacrifice to take place, it can't be me because I'm not sinless. And it can't be you because you're not sinless. It has to be someone outside of us but it still has to be human. And therefore, God has to become man. What a beautiful, what a beautiful just picture of that. God satisfying his own judgment upon himself so he can extend mercy and forgiveness to you and I. So this is why I want to talk to you today about an old man, a prophecy in the world that will never be the same. And I want to talk to you out of just a section of scripture dealing with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. If you read in the book of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah was a priest, and, and in those days, because there were many priests that came out of the line of Aaron, there was casting of lots when it was your turn to kind of do the priestly duty. And his lot came up, and he was doing something called burning incense in a, in a section of the temple called the holy place. And they burned incense in the morning, they burned incense in the evening, and And uh, at this particular time, when he was burning incense, everyone's outside the temple praying while he's offering incense, which is a picture of prayer. And when he's there, an angel appears before him. The angel identifies himself as Gabriel. And he says, listen, your favor, with God is with you, Zechariah. See, he was an old man and his wife was old, past childbearing age, and they weren't able to have children. In those days, that was, a, that was just a shameful, embarrassing thing. People suffered deeply. They suffered deeply in this day, but they suffered like double deeply in those days because there was like something wrong with you. There's a curse upon your life, and there was such a humiliation that went with that. Yet the angel said, the Lord's with you. Isn't it interesting that you're suffering sometimes through humiliation, but God's still working in your life. And he's right on schedule. He's holding on to you, as the song said today. And the angel said, your wife is going to have, a, he's gonna have a, a son, and his name's going to be John. God named him John. And he's going to really, the angel said, he's going to fulfill the prophecies of the prophet Malachi that said there's going to come a messenger that's going to come to prepare the way of the Lord. There's a messenger that's come that's going to turn the hearts of fathers to children, the, hearts of children of the Father before the great day of the visitation of God. And he's going to come in that spirit of Malachi, that prophetic spirit of Malachi. He's going to come in that spirit. He's going to fulfill that. He can't drink strong drink, and there's going to be sacrifice. He's going to be separated from other people. He's going to do what the Jews call the, a Nazarite. He's going to have a lifetime Nazarite vow upon his life because he's going to be special to me. And of course, John doesn't believe this. Excuse me, Zachariah doesn't believe this because because they're way past childbearing age. But with God, all things are what? And so it's very interesting to me that Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who's come to you from the presence of God. In other words, there's a zero tolerance in the presence of God for unbelief. And he muted him. He basically, you're on mute and you can't talk. And he comes out and he can't talk. People said he must have seen a vision, must have seen something, and he can't talk. Obviously, he was able to communicate somehow by writing or whatever to to Elizabeth because she knew that his name was to be John. So Elizabeth becomes pregnant, which is a great miracle. And then when the child's born, they're circumcised on the eighth day. They're trying to talk about how, what are we gonna name him? And of course, Elizabeth, his wife says, his name's gonna be John. And uh, everyone says, there's no one in the family that's named John. Can't be John. And all of a sudden, Zachariah's mouth is open. Now, I have a theory why God muted him because God was trying to perform a miracle and he didn't need any confessions of unbelief while he was trying to perform his miracle. <laughs> a little speculation on my part. You can't talk. When you talk, you're messing this whole thing up. So we're going to shut you up until the miracle's performed. And all of a sudden he opens up, his name will be John, and everyone's just, it's unbelievable. He, was, he couldn't speak, and he can speak, and Mary couldn't have children, she can have children, in there, and there's really biologically, you know, everything's kind of dried up. They can't really have kids, but they've had kids, and, and we don't know how old they were, but, you know, one, everyone knew it was a miracle. God sets stages in your life, He sets stages in my life where it's impossible at, for us to fulfill it where when it happens, man can know it wasn't me, it wasn't you, it had to be God. All we could do is believe and rest in the work of God and then God gets the glory, amen? So let's, all of a sudden, Zechariah now prophesies and here's, here's, the, here's the prophecy. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Everyone say, God visited. Come on, come on, visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Abraham. To grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'm gonna break this down and just, let's capture the spirit of what took place here. One, Zechariah was filled with the spirit and he prophesied. Theologically, it, it, we, we need to to remember the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the people of the Old Testament. It was, it was the same Holy Spirit. and was the same anointing. When they prophesied, it's like someone prophesying today. When someone got healed, it's like someone got healed today. But the Spirit was different in that the, the anointing, when it fell on people, it was selective. It wasn't just like the whole mass. Remember like when the 70 elders took on Moses' mantle and all of a sudden the Spirit came on and they began to prophesy, but it was 70, and then Moses says, I want all the Lord's people to be prophets. I think that's a little preview of coming attractions in the New Testament. So it, it, it was selective, and it was temporary, like Saul. The Spirit left Saul. And so there, it was temporary. It came on for certain actions and times, and it was selective on who he would anoint. But it was the same Holy Spirit. And, and we see here that uh, God did that in the inter intertestament period. And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, and uh, oops, I'm gonna go back here. Excuse me a second. It says the, one of the things that I <laughs> go back. I'm gonna go back. Go back. Go back. I'm going forward. I don't want to go forward. There we go. Sorry guys. I'm having a I'm having a moment here with my own. There we go. Boom, boom. There you go. Sorry. I gave you some previews. He prophesied. Now I want you to know he was filled and he was prophesied. He prophesied. The the Spirit's presence in our life, the Spirit's presence in our life brings us an awareness of God's thoughts. And even brings, when the Spirit comes, an unction to share those thoughts. You know, a lot of, we we talk, one of the strong doctrines of this church is what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's also a part of Jesus' ministry, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament by the prophet Joel. It was associated with the ability to hear God's thoughts and, God's, and, and to be able to speak God's words. And the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall do what? prophesying. Your old men shall do what? Dream. How many people had a dream last night? Okay, just reveals your age. Your young, men, your young men will see visions, okay? So what is it? It's a prophetic thing. So when the Spirit comes, one of the signs that I've been baptized with the Holy Spirit is I'm going to become more aware of the thoughts of God and an unction to speak the thoughts of God. And so, and so this is very important to understand. You see in Acts 19, when people received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in other languages, but they also prophesied. The issue is that we become a prophetic people and we start hearing the voice of God and his thoughts. And then he, in this, in this he, he said these words, "'Blessed is the Lord God of Israel.'" Now, the Greek word for blessed, it means to be well-spoken of. And in the Old Testament, when they used this word, like, bless the Lord, O my soul, that word had within it the same connotation as to praise God or exalt God. Here's the issue. The presence of the Spirit of God does something within us to want to worship. It should bring worship out of it. It should bring a yearning for worship. It, It should bring a drive, a compulsion to worship because of the presence of the Spirit he joins heaven in worship, and so the Holy Spirit brings that worship of exalting God because it's all about glorifying Jesus, amen, and that should be within us to exalt him. Moves him to worship. Now, in this, we've got to especially know this with Zechariah. It was in light of a whole visitation of God. He just had an angel visit him. He had a wife have a miracle happen to him. She was pregnant. His tongue just got loose. And the prophetic word over his child is that he was going to fulfill the prophecies of Malachi and set the stage for a great visitation of God promised in the Old Testament. I mean, he had a lot to worship about, didn't he? Anything God does for us, it should always provoke what? It should provoke worship in us. Okay. And then he goes on to say, he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, as I said, Zechariah was very aware of his son's mission, his mission that he will turn many to the Lord. and He would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah and he would fulfill the prophecies of Malachi and he was gonna restore people and, and set a stage for Jesus to come. And John was very aware, as we're gonna see in this prophecy, that, that Jesus Christ was gonna come and, go, and John was gonna set the stage for something even greater than John. And so God was visiting his people. Now, while it's true that God is always there in our life. He's always there. All we have to do is reach for him. There are times when God visits. He might visit you in, in your salvation. Jesus said that no one can come to the Father. You know, no one can come to Jesus except those whom the Father has revealed Him. He has to reveal Jesus to us. He has to open our eyes and I remember when Jesus God was opening my eyes about Jesus and who Jesus is there was a visitation I went through. He might come to you and get filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a visitation. He might come and heal you. He might come with a miraculous some type of deliverance, some type of healing, some type of provision. Just you know, just it's 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 a hosanna. It's a saved now. It's just at that moment, he does this powerful thing for you. God visits you. And God visits people. God visits churches. There's seasons of visitation. You know, right now I'm working with Cambodia. I'm trying to get some of you to come with me to do this. Uh, but there's a revival in Cambodia that's it's like the book of Acts. It's a land that was devastated by the killing fields. It was a, devastated by the communists and, and a heavy Buddhist nation. But people are starting to get saved by the hundreds in this nation. And when you're seeing them just coming and coming by the droves and getting saved, you're seeing God visiting a nation. And it's all said. Buddhism doesn't have the answer. Communism doesn't have the answer. Jesus has the answer. And it's exciting to see a visitation take place like that. God comes, and, it's, and he goes on to say, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us from the house of his servant, David. You know, the horn of an animal speaks of the strength of the animal, we've had some sheep that are rams with horns, and you know you never want to just go up and pet a, a, a ram like with your hand out like that because he'll ram you. And if you ever seen a ram ram, it, it, it's kind of scary. Okay, they're tough. They're tough. They're tough. I remember I had Randy Ziegler and Rod Robinson out in the field trying to catch one of those rams one time. And, you know, the ram won. We went all the way limping and beat up. Okay, ram. The horn is strong. Well, what this is talking about is that when God comes, and through the person of Jesus, it's going to come with power. Yeah. It's going to come with power. Amen. Now, it's going it's to do something. He's, and then it says here that he's coming to us from the house of his servant David. Now, to us, living in the 21st century and being non-Jewish, maybe there's some of you who have some type of a Jewish background, Sometimes these days, you found somebody who is Jewish, like from the 17th century in your family, you know, heritage. You feel like you're like fully Jew. That's not necessarily true, but you do have some in you. But you may not know. I'm not familiar with Jewish culture, but especially in the first century. So we hear this, and nowadays, that wouldn't mean too much to us, this servant that comes from the house of David. But when Paul preached the gospel, you look at Romans, chapter, first chapter. He says that, uh, that he was separated from the gospel of God that God promised through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David. Now, why was that so important if you were a Jew of the first century? Because that means it was the specific fulfillment of prophetic hope that the Messiah would come through the family line of David. So someone gave us a prophecy and had two or three signs to the church of the prophecy. You'd be paying attention to those two or three signs. And I got up here and I said, hey, it happened. But those two or three signs didn't come with it. You'd have a hard time receiving it. But this is a sign God gave that's going to come through the line of David, man after God's own heart, that he said there's always going to be someone sitting on your throne. So the Messiah had to come through that line. And Jesus came through the line of the family of David. Both Matthew and Luke's genealogies substantiate that. That's why they did that in the Gospels. It was very important because God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Amen? Amen. He is good. Come on, he is good. We sang it today. And then he's gonna do this to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The promise. What was the promise that he gave to the Jewish fathers? The promise is that Abraham would be the father of all nations. Wow. Be the father of all nations. That's the fulfillment. So in the birth of Jesus Christ, God becoming man, it's the beginning of the unfolding of the promise that Abraham would not just become the father of the Jewish race, but become the father of, of all nations, that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Promise. And for that to be fulfilled, God has to show mercy to nations that right now are not seeking him and they're idol worshipers. And so that's what's happening. We can rest that God is showing his mercy to idol worshipers. So nations like Cambodia that's full of Buddhist temples and incense and superstition and fear, God is beginning to show mercy to them and they're coming to become the true worshipers of God. John Piper says that, that missions exist because worship doesn't exist. And when worship does exist among the nations of the earth, God's mission is fulfilled. And so we can rest in this because, that's co- because he's remembering his holy covenant. And when God remembers the holy covenant, it means he vowed in his promise. He just didn't promise, he vowed in his promise. God bound himself to fulfill this plan so we can rest that God's going to touch the world and in this point of the story of God, it was, the, it was beginning to happen through the birth of John and through the birth of Jesus. God was beginning to unfold his plan. It's not just a little say, Abraham. You gotta put the whole Bible together on this. It's not just a little story of a baby being born. It's not like Will Ferrell preaching in Talagata Nights, you know, little eight-pound Jesus, okay? <laughs> no, we're talking about God fulfilling his plan. And we can rest in this. Some of you get really worried about the news. The news can get you really uptight. One way or another, you can get really upset about the news. But listen, God is in control. God is unfolding his plan. We can rest. It started the unfolding with the birth of John, then Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit on the church. In the last 2,000 years of church history, he's unfolding his plan to see all nations come to him and worship him as God. I want you to rest in that. I want you to rest in that. That is a promise of God, a holy covenant that he gave. And he goes on to say, to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, might serve him without fear. Now we have enemies. You say, well, yeah, I know, my next door neighbor. Guy at work. But when Luke's talking about enemies and, and, and prayers of the Old Testament kings and prayers of the psalmists, for instance, Psalm 97, verse 10, it says, You love the Lord, and you you who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of all his faithful followers. He delivers them from the power of the wicked. And so we have these things where the enemies coming against me and enemy nations and enemies that are betraying me and enemies. But Luke is not looking at this as people. He's looking at this as something figurative. He's gonna deliver us from another type of enemy, the enemy of Satan, the enemy of sin, the enemy of the demonic influence over society. You can see this in Acts chapter two. Well, the remedy to be delivered was not to get a sword and overthrow Rome. The remedy to be delivered was to repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then two verses later, Peter says, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. The issue is a spiritual enemy that we're facing that God calls, wants us to be delivered of. And, and, and so that's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to set you free and me free from an enemy that's out to destroy us. You gotta get a worldview that you're not just fighting something evil. You are fighting someone evil. We need to be set free from the words and the values and the, and the, and the pursuits and the views of a generation. that's really swayed by Satan because we're in that. We're in that fight, but Jesus came to deliver us. Now, two points I wanna make. One, God came to save us from sin and Satan, and the society is influenced by Satan. You know, sometimes in our reaching out to the world, we, we wanna be so relevant in reaching them, we don't wanna be judgmental, that we, we don't live a different lifestyle. Now, that doesn't mean we don't touch people. People have taken that too far. we become like monks. We have to touch people. We have to be involved in people. We have to share experiences with people. We have to have joint experiences with them that they're hard to be open to us. But there should be something different in our views, something different in our values, something different in our, our, our way we approach life and our perspective of life that so is different than them that they should be attracted to us. To be saved and delivered, but not just delivered from sin, so I can door greet at a church. I got forgiven, now I can door greet. And if you're door greeting, God bless you. But God just didn't deliver you to door, cause you to be a door greeter. It says to serve Him. I am delivered not just from something, I am delivered to something. I'm delivered to serve God radically. He saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a reason. And he wants to fill your life with that purpose. It goes on to say, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Hmm. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. It's interesting that this child be called the prophet of the Most High. Prophet of the Most High. You know, we kind of have an egalitarian view of ministry and in some ways I I preach it strong that we're a body ministry and every part does its share and every part has value. It's very much a part of this culture. But sometimes we we need to realize that there are instruments that God uses that have been separated to go through some particular things and intense training to handle a a particular part of his purpose that's going to really cost them to be his mouthpiece. And John was one of them. This is a special child and he's going to go through special things and he's going to live a unique life. I think that's true in the body of Christ today that we're all called sometimes to, we're all called to ministry, but there are some people that are called that have to pay a little extra price. You say, well, I really want to have a ministry of healing. I've said this to you before. I applaud you for that. But what would you do if all of a sudden one day we had you pray for like 50 people, and all 50 people got healed that day? I mean, you got to pray with Joe. I mean, Joe, every time he prays, bam, bam, bam. I want you to know from that moment on One, your life will never be the same. And all the things you enjoy, anytime you want them, are probably gone. Your phone's going to ring off the hook. They're going to be in your front yard wanting you to pray for them. When you want to go to bed, they don't understand the word boundaries. They know I need to get healed. So boundaries teaching is out. Okay? Right to privacy is out. Then people are going to ridicule you. So the right to a good reputation is out. And then all of a sudden, people are going to question whether it's from God or not. So right of being honored is out. So you've got to give all that up to be used by God. You'll be the prophet of the Most High. And you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He was going to come before Jesus to prepare the way. How? By calling the nation to repent and to be washed from their sins. Call the nation, to be repent. be washed from, sins, from their sins. God only comes to a prepared people. He only comes to a prepared people. It's interesting to me, the people that John refused to baptize or the people who refused to be baptized under John's ministries were the very people who opposed Jesus. God only comes to a prepared people. So the question is, to what extent do I or you or us, to what extent are we willing to do everything we need to do to prepare ourselves for a true visitation of God? Now, you're going to have to answer that question because he only comes to prepared people. He's going to prepare the people that go before the Lord to prepare his ways, and this is speaking of John's ministry to give the knowledge of salvation to his people. So salvation to his people, to his people, in the forgiveness of sin—a little bit double thing to his people went twice in the forgiveness of sins. This knowledge isn't uh, just facts and information. John wasn't out in the wilderness. Hey, just a few prophecies are getting ready to come to pass. Just want you guys to know we'll take a test at the Jordan River tomorrow. It was experience by encounter. Experience by encountering transformation. Experience of repenting. Experience of conversion. Experience of transformation. These people's hearts were being changed. And the things that they, they went through was leading them to a place where God could show mercy and to forgive them of their sins. Because he says, because of the tender mercy of our God. Now the Apostle Paul said, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. God who is rich in mercy. Christmas is really about God loving us and coming to us. But it's God loving us in our twisted condition. It's God loving us in our tainted condition. It's God loving us in our self-centered condition. It's God loving us in our rebellious condition and coming to us with mercy and saying, hey, let's have a relationship. But this relationship is going to require you to allow me to change you. I will show mercy to you and I will declare you righteous, but the the rest of you to be a part of this, making you what I call you to be. And that's what this is about. And I want you to be a part of this. There's a welcoming to the undesirable. There's a welcoming to the person who's cast out. Come to the party. I want you. And then he says, speaking of Jesus, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You know, the New Numbers twenty four verse seventeen says, a star shall come out of Jacob. And John chapter one it says, I'm not the light, but I pointed the one to that light. Or talking about John, he wasn't the light, but he pointed people to the light. Speaking of Jesus. And notice what this says. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet to peace. Come on, Come on God. One thing he wants us to do, wants to do is he wants to bring us out of deception. Yes. Amen. He wants to bring us out of darkness where we don't understand and we believe things that are not true where we're destroyed and other people are destroyed. He wants to bring us out of that and he wants to take us into the place of peace. Christmas is like a snowflake. I think the story is a little bit more powerful than that. Would you stand to your feet?